Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, there's a difference between experiencing trauma in your life and hashtag trauma. You know, what I want to take on is hashtag trauma. You know, people who feel the need to stay and wallow within their self-pity so that they can get as much attention as possible from their social media friends. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about politics, we talk about culture, we talk about culture wars, we've ranged far and wide. We probably haven't done quite enough on science. We've talked to astrophysicists, we've done some on artificial intelligence, but today we're going to talk to a cognitive psychologist about what's going on in the mind. Who are we? What is the learning of these fields and research over the past decades, how has that illuminated human consciousness, human intelligence, how we think, how we act, who we are. And we probably should have these conversations a little bit more, but uh, we're really excited to have one today. So Emma, tell us who we're going to talk to. Today, we're talking to Scott Barry Kaufman. He's a cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist, and his work explores the depths of human potential. As such, he's also the founder and director of the Center for Human Potential. He hosts a podcast called The Psychology Podcast and is author editor of nine previous books, including Transcend, Wired to Create, and most recently, Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. Welcome to What Could Go Right, Scott. You have an interesting career. One thing I was struck by, uh, because you wrote a book a bunch of years ago called Ungifted, which is a great title. And I think you had been put into some special learning programs as a kid. And one of the things you were trying to show in the book is, and in your work, is that the way in which we've scanned for what we call intelligence is flawed, and it, it funnels people into a very particular pathway, and we would do much better in looking at this differently. So I want you to talk about that. I'm also interested in the degree to which even though your background, my background, Emma's background are in, you know, what what we would call sort of traditional elite education, higher education, whether or not the result of all those mechanisms that you talk about that screen for intelligence end up creating, if not hothouse flowers in those particular environments, then a kind of a particular type of intelligence that then leaves by the cultural and social wayside all sorts of other intelligences that we could all benefit much more from and are therefore, I suppose, underutilizing. Hmm, interesting. Well, you know, the the field of human intelligence is really rich and fascinating, exciting. There are a lot of misconceptions about it. You know, the whole idea of different types of intelligence, there is something called general intelligence. Um, some people are generally smarter than others. That's a real fact. You know, you can go on Twitter if you want to test that hypothesis, <laughs> see if it's true or not. <laughs> you know, there are people. There are some people who are able to reason and uh, process information quicker and learn quicker across multiple situations, kind of devoid of the content uh, or the domain. Um, with that said, there are group factors. There are different components of general intelligence, such as visual, spatial, verbal, and it goes on. I think that we all have our patterns and strengths of cognitive strengths and weaknesses, but on average, there still is there is meaning in IQ. You know, it, it's not a meaningless construct, and I've never argued that it is. 
I think there's a lot of nuance with the field of intelligence. And uh, a lot of my research is trying to show that nuance and also not use IQ testing as a way of limiting potential, but only using that information as a way to activate potential in all people. Um, so I, I don't I don't like how a lot of the policy decisions uh, have been made regarding IQ testing and K through twelve. That's something I've definitely criticized, but I do still think that the, the intelligence matters. Um, Scott, I'm curious if you have any other pet peeves having done so much research across self actualization, human intelligence, psychology. I mean, it's hard to summarize everything that you've looked at. Any other pet peeves when it comes to concepts that have traveled into the mainstream that you feel like is not actually helpful or are misconceptions that are harmful? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's many. There's many. One, the intelligence is the same thing as creativity or imagination. They're they're very uh, different. They're correlated. You know, people who score higher on IQ tests do tend to, on average, score better at divergent thinking, but it, the correlation is not extremely high. And uh, a lot of people uh, who are very smart uh, intellectually are not don't have a great imagination or are not very high in o- the personality trait openness to experience. That's a separate trait. Um, I also really can't stand this chart that seems to go around about what you're capable of achieving in your life based on various IQ bands. Um, Jordan Peter, this I don't know if you've heard of the psychologist Jordan Peterson, but uh, he, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> he's uh, he's obsessed with um, th- these bands and uh, has done videos. Um, that I think cause a lot of damage showing uh, he's like, you, this is what you're capable of in life. If your IQ is this to this, 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 you could, if it's between this band and this band, you sewage work is the best for you. If it's within this band and this band, then you can maybe consider being a doctor uh, or a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I can't tell you how many young men have emailed me panicking over these Jordan Peterson videos that they are not able to do things, anything in life. I try to correct help as much as I can by responding compassionately. They've never actually tested their IQ, you know. They're just freaking out over a Jordan Peterson video. You know, who's anyone else to tell you what you're what what you're capable of uh, unless you try. I was going to ask that like who actually knows their IQ? Like I don't know what my IQ is. I've never tested my IQ. Most people don't. You know, they try to guess. I I think there there are a lot of self-limiting beliefs that people have. Um people getting getting in their own way. Yeah, I'm I'm just a big believer in just going for what your dreams and as corny as it sounds. And as far as taking tests, you know, Emma, you mentioned I think before we got on that you had taken Scott's tests on his website, which which don't require an email. I like <laughs> taking online IQ tests and Enneagram tests and person. I mean, it's just it's it's a fun way to uh, procrastinate when you have to do something else. So I've taken any number of online IQ tests. And what's fascinating about those is how completely different they all seem in what they're asking and how they're assessing. I haven't done the ones where you have to then pay for your results. Like I do, I do stop at that point. <laughs> you have like, a boundary. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, I want to move to your book, Transcend, which I read recently. You take the very infamous Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that pyramid that everyone's familiar with, and you redo the pyramid into a sailboat. So I have a two-part question. First, tell us about the sailboat, because I think it's really interesting. And then after that, I really want to talk about vulnerable narcissism and what that is. Sure. Uh, so the sailboat model is my reimagining of Maslow's hierarchy of needs from a static sort of pyramid where it's like it depicts life as some sort of video game that you have to reach some level before you can get to the next level, and then you never have to worry about the lower level of needs ever again is just not in line with the reality of human development. And also, Maslow never drew a pyramid, so it's also a misrepresentation of Maslow's work. I I think the sailboat's a better reflection of the journey of self-actualization. We're in this sea of the unknown trying to reach some port that we have in our mind, some goal, some dream, higher level dream, and waves can come crashing down on us at any point. We can get holes in the boat and then get stuck um, and feel insecure, but we ultimately have to open up the sail if we want to grow and 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 move. You know, so there's these different components of the sailboat that I think relate and map on nicely to security versus growth. Can you talk a little bit about where those needs are in relation to the sailboat? Like, what's the boat? What's the sail? Where are we going? 
<laughs> yeah, well, where we're going is up to you, my friend. But um, <laughs> I can say the rest of it. So the boat itself comprises the needs for security, the need for connection, the need for self-esteem, and then the growth uh, of the sail is the need for exploration, the need for love, and the need for purpose. I think the deep integration of love, exploration, and purpose nicely represents what growth is and that the needs for security, connection, and self and self-esteem nicely reflect the stability of feeling like you're in your own body, that you're connected to your body, that you have a strong foundation to move around the world. It's catastrophic when your self-esteem is so uncertain that you really need to um, rely on everyone else for your own self-esteem. And that, that really gets us in the territory of vulnerable narcissism, as you mentioned, which is a great example of this chronically uncertain self-esteem that can lead to violence in outwardly as well as inwardly. So vulnerable narcissism, maybe define that for people. I think a lot of people think of narcissism as grandiose narcissism, which is like chest thumping, I'm the best, I'm inherently superior to others, entitlement. But researchers are, are getting some to some more finely green nuanced for instance, you can do tests now, and we do this in our studies, where you don't just ask questions on this psychological entitlement scale, like, if I was on the Titanic, I'd be the first person, I should be the first person to have a lifeboat. These these are all these sort of, that's actually a question on the psychological entitlement scale. Wait, and there are people who say yes? They, well, it's a one to seven rating, and oh yeah. How would, you de- how, how would one determine what your ranking in that order should be? Should be. Well, if like, you're a narcissist, the... I guess it's a very <laughs> obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you score high in psychological time, you'll put a seven to that question. That's the point. Yeah. Really? <laughs> makes, uh, wow. but, but the thing is, um, you can more finely grained, um, not just ask the, that question, but you can say different reasons for the entitlement. So if I was on the Titanic, I'd be the first person to get a, I should be the first person to have a lifeboat because dot, dot, dot. And the first one is is grandiose narcissism, which is because I'm inherently superior to everyone else on the boat. But then there's another one, number two, which is dot, 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 because I've suffered in the past more than anyone else on the boat. And that's vulnerable narcissism. Vulnerable narcissism is feeling like you're entitled to special privileges because you have suffered more than you believe you have suffered more than others and you deserve it or your own perceived fragility like i am more fragile you know i'm more sensitive than anyone else on this boat that's wild i you know, it's funny, i didn't know about this test i mean it's hard to picture a situation in which you you sort of feel like you have a greater right to live than 2000 other souls because you've been more harmed but i guess that is in fact a real place Hello, Israel-Palestine conflict. Are you watching the news? You watching the news? That is absolutely a legit, a legit response. You know that my pain is worth way more than other people's pain, or my suffering is worth way more than other people's suffering. Which I know we do all the time. It's just, it's another magnitude to do it like with that level of consciousness, right? It's one, it's one thing to do it. It's one thing to act on it. It's, it's actually the the stating of it on a test that I find is of another order entirely. Like the unconscious, because you have to be conscious enough when you're writing something down on a test. Well, the thing is, you know, I mean, it's anonymous. You know, people, when they do do tell the truth when it's uh, on an anonymous survey. We, you know, in the Atlantic, uh, there's a whole article that features my work on the dark triad. Um, People who are high in dark triad, I mean, they're honest about their traits and characteristics. Um, they have insight into it. Um, dark triad people know they're dark triad, um, but you know, they're actually proud of it, which is the, the point of the point of that, you know, they're proud of it. They're not, they're not ashamed of it. You're, you're, you're really speaking from a, a worldview of a light triad person, which maybe it's hard for you to like, see the world through the eyes of a dark triad person. But, um, dark triad people are very proud of their assholery. Okay, so maybe now we have to stop and explain what's dark triad and what's light triad, and if we should all be happy that Zachary is apparently light triad. <laughs> or maybe I just want people to think that I'm Maybe. Are you a vulnerable narcissist? <laughs> That's the next thing we gotta check. Well, that would be Machiavellianism, which is one part of the dark triad. Dark triad comprises Machiavellianism, which is manipulation of others, um, maybe manipulating other people's perceptions of you. Um, narcissism, and uh, psychopathy. 
Actually, some have argued that the dark uh, tetrad exists, which is sadism, everyday, everyday sadism. Everyday sadism is, is that you go around your everyday life really enjoying uh, and getting pleasure from humiliating and uh, embarrassing people. And the light triad? The light triad is a whole different world. You know, it's like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> when I meet a light triad person, I'm like, I want to be your friend. So light triad people tend to score high in uh, the opposite of Machiavellianism. We call it Kantianism. Another aspect of the light triad is humanism. So treating people, every individual with dignity and respect. And then there's faith in humanity, which is the third one. Third member of the light triad, which is even though you recognize human imperfections, you still believe at the end of the day that people are basically good at heart. So you haven't gone into, over into cynical world quite yet. We'll be right back after this break. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. I mean, you know, for me, just like you did with with the Maslow and sort of refining or or progressing an earlier theory, you're building upon a lot of other work. You're building on things that a lot of human beings have tried to articulate maybe in a more atomized way, right? And bringing it together in a more, what's called a unified field theory of human consciousness. And I think there's always great value to that. You know, the, the challenge of distilling types, right? Well, one, there's the there's the kind of the 80-20, meaning if, if you get most of the bell curve of humanity, but what about the outliers, right? So that's always a question. Does, can any theory in, incorporate the outliers? What, what does one do about that? Do you just accept that there are always going to be individuals who, are, who do not fit any particular box easily? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what we do is they're not boxes. The research suggests that you can classify within each person their their constitution of light versus dark traits. In fact, we have a scale online. It's, you can go to selfactualizationtest.com. You can take the test and it'll say how much Yoda is within you and how much Darth Vader is in you uh, and using their scales. So you can. So what we've published papers looking at the proportion of uh, within each person um, that you're light versus dark. And, and very few people are pure dark. We, we estimate about 7% of the human population. Now they cause all the havoc in the world, right? But it's amazing what only 7% of the human population can do for the rest of the 93%. But with that said, fi- most 50% are a mix of light and dark traits. So that's true. But interestingly enough, about 43%, 43%, are pure white, so that's kind of cool. That is, that's nice. That's a that's a sweet thing to think about. Yeah, um, I think most people really do mean well. I think that when you uh, you trigger or activate their defenses, you know, people turn into assholes, and that's part of human nature. Um, but I think uh, as long as you don't, you know, activate their defenses in an extreme way, I think most people really want to do good in the world and want to at least be seen as good. <laughs> I mean, my feeling about this is a piggybacking onto what Zachary said, which is, am I now supposed to avoid dark triad people 
Is it like if you have some dark tribe in you that that's something you're supposed to be working on, like a self-improvement project? What's what what do I do with this in my day-to-day life, I guess? Um as a from which perspective? I guess there's a few different ones, right? I guess if you like find out that you're entirely light tribe, you can be like, yes, like great person. I'm, you know, I'm going to float off into heaven now, but can we use the knowledge of, let's say you're light triad and you want to avoid dark triad people? Is that what would make sense? Or from the opposite perspective, let's say you find out you're full of dark triad traits, but sliver of you wants to not do that anymore. Can you work on that? Or is that just how you are? No, I I think with all personality traits, I don't think it comes down to uh, something that's immutable. Throughout the course of your day, you know, you your personality is really your beha- patterns of behaviors and thinking and motions. It's they, they, we're not talking about like you are this twenty. There's no one who's an introvert twenty four seven. There's no one who's an extrovert twenty four seven. There's no one who's an asshole twenty four seven. No one who's a good person twenty four seven. I think a lot of scorers on the light triad. A downside for them is they can be tend to be people pleasers, and um, I've really. Uh, been really interested in um, helping people pleasers like recognize how much they're causing so much suffering to themselves by not being able to set appropriate boundaries and to not always immediately spring to action every time they feel empathy for something. Yeah, I mean that that sort of brings to mind the the Buddhist life is suffering or the the pain aversion principle in that seems to motivate a huge swath of human behavior. Not to be morbid, just to be you know frank, right? We're we're all mortal. We all have to face the prospect of death, and the attempt to chronically avoid the potential pain of that or the potential pain of anything else, you know, creates all sorts of massive issues, including what you just said, which is if it's not if it's not pain inflicted upon others, it could well be pain inflicted upon oneself, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. I've I've been studying. Uh, I've been really interested in incels. Uh, who are invol- involuntary celibate uh, men, um, and uh, they're linked to vulnerable narcissism. Most incels are not violent against others. Most of them have suicidal ideation and are anxious and, and depressed. So I think vulnerable narcissism tends to lead to more internalization, whereas grandiose narcissism tends to lead to more externalization of, of violence. Is it possible to have like a vulnerable narcissistic culture or a highly insecure culture or something like that are we in one (laughs) hello jen this jen (laughs) whatever this jen is called now um z um yeah um i think we're living in the age of vulnerable narcissism okay wow i've yeah, I, that's I've said that before. Um, whereas I think uh, in the '80s, it, you know, the self-esteem movement shifted in to the grandiose narcissism age. Now I think it's it's shifted into a vulnerable narcissism age. You know, there was a time you know where where young kids felt entitled to everything because they felt. Uh, my high self-esteem. I'm better. Uh, I praise me. You know, I get the award. I want the trophy. I deserve the trophy. I deserve the trophy uh, because I'm better than everyone else. But now everyone wants the trophy because they're a person of color or their gender or their, you know, whatever sort of intersectionality wheel it is. You know, a victimhood or suffering. That means I deserve a greater piece of the pie. I think you really are seeing that now. Now I recognize what I'm saying might be controversial, and you might not want to touch what I said with a 50-inch pole, but um, I think that's the truth. <laughs> you know this this question of uh, like grandiosity, and yes, it's true. Like there are definitely people who will who will hear what you just said and react viscerally without necessarily thinking through the reactions. Right? I mean, we li- we yeah. live in a world of increasingly subcategories of people, each of whom are claiming some degree of you know preeminence of. And, and as a side note, I mean, the thing about intersectionality, and for those who are not steeped in academic jargon, you know, it's the idea of, so my, my cynical way of describing intersectionality is that no one could agree about whether race, gender, class, or all these things was the primary negative motive cause of history. And so we'll just all agree that it's all of them. Um, that's my, that's my, my brief and not so pithy explanation of intersectionality. But the but the question about like grandiosity and culture, right? You could you could argue that the United States in particular 
and the British Empire in the 19th century, any great imperial state, right? has been fueled by its own self-delusion and grandiosity, which has both allowed it to do great harm to others, but it's also fueled it to, to push the boundaries of scientific innovation and creativity and change, right? So it's like, how do you, when, when you aggregate this to a collective level, right? How do you separate out, this is a little like Emma's question before about, is it all bad to be, you know, is, is, all, dark, is all dark triad dark in its consequences? How do you separate out we, we seem to celebrate heroically grandiose narcissistic figures. Great point, Zachary. Really great point. We do. Uh, no, I mean, we don't celebrate and we elect them into office. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we just celebrate. We make decisions that put them in positions of power. But also, look, you know, they're, they're more, they, research shows they're more attractive for mates, at least at first. And then you, and you get to about the nine month mark of dating and the person, the spell, the narcissistic spell breaks. And you're like, holy shit, I'm with an actual asshole, not, you know, someone who's, ama- who's charming and amazing. Um, but so, so there, there is something within us that is attracted to people with supreme confidence because we want more of that ourselves. So we align ourselves and try to be close to it as much as possible, thinking it will rub off on us in some way. But what often tends to happen is they really exploit us um, and use us. And we find out someday that our dream, that it'll rub off on us and we'll become more confident, um, actually leads to a situation where we've been taken advantage of and we're the schmuck uh, or that's how we feel. So I, I think that's the reality of the matter. I'm I'm dropping some truth bombs on you guys today. I assume that's what you wanted. That's why you invited me on the podcast. <laughs> of course. I mean, I think it's really interesting to talk about this also in relation to like trauma culture. I'm always caught in this tension between it really, on the one hand, is helpful, like all these like pop psychologists on Instagram talking about trauma. Like I there's a lot of ideas that I've have had that have been personally helpful to me. On the other hand, like if a Walmart person talks about their trauma, I'm just going to like, I jump out the window. Uh, <laughs> am I Absolutely. alone here? <laughs> oh no, that's, that's uh, the topic of my next book. <laughs> uh, do you want to give us um, somewhat of a preview? Well, I've, I haven't announced it or talked about it yet uh, anywhere, but that's a major theme of my next book. I should say, look, there's a difference between experiencing trauma in your life and hashtag trauma. You know, what I want to take on is hashtag trauma. You know, people who feel the need to stay and wallow within their self-pity so that they can get as much attention as possible from their social media friends um, and get clout over it um, is a whole different story. Research actually shows an interesting, and I wrote about this for Psychology Today, a zero correlation between those who are actually highly sensitive people um, and score high on HSP scales and high sensitivity signalers. <laughs> high sensitivity signalers are people who don't actually, they're not actually highly sensitive, but they signal in every situation like, oh my God, I can't deal with that or I need to get out of that thing or that homework is too hard for me because I'm a highly sensitive person. <laughs> uh, and uh, and that and they those people tend to score high in the dark triad traits. Mm. So that's the deal with that. That the, the highly sensitive signalers are also Machiavellian, and they tend to be. They tend to be. Most people who are who've gone through legitimate trauma don't want to talk about it incessantly. They really. I have a lot of compassion, of course. For I don't want to sound like and come across here like I don't have a compassion. Um, you know, people who've gone through horrible, terrible things. Um, there is a process to help them heal and to move forward with their lives. But most of those people don't enjoy constantly ruminating and talking about it on social media. They don't do it in a way where they're like, hey, everyone, look at me. I've had trauma. Aren't you so proud of me? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, the reality is, right, anything that happens to any of our loved ones and friends is deeply impactful to us, right? Our subset of us. You know, if my mother has cancer, if my you know, if my children have struggles, that's a that's a major issue. But it is not a major issue for others other than us, right? It's like my my trauma is is a major issue for me. To expect it to be a major issue for someone else is a, is a stretch. To expect some compassion if it comes up is a, is something else entirely. But I think there is there is a fetishizing of trauma uh, collectively 
that you know look these things may be may be cultural pendulums insofar as things that have been ignored and neglected uh which is excessive in one direction then gets excessively attended to another and it, you know you use the kantian imperative we could use the hegelian imperative maybe this is all just human beings in a you know in a continual state of hegelian evolution we have a thesis and then we have an antithesis and then we have a synthesis and then that becomes you know it's like a thing i don't yeah. know yeah 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 um well a lot of uh a lot of related to this is the idea of triggering and and i have said on social media and it pisses off uh, a lot of people your triggers are your responsibility you can't expect that everyone should tiptoe around you and mind read all of your traumas and all of your past history of triggers you know you have to take a certain sense of responsibility for putting uh, for changing your environment in ways like you are all the one with the knowledge of what triggers you you know so i don't like this idea of like you know like let's say someone gets triggered over something they're like and 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 then they blame it on someone else you know and and say you, you know i was traumatized don't you know i shouldn't have to do that or you shouldn't look at me that way or there's a certain sense of responsibility i think that people aren't taking in this trauma obsessed and trauma blamed so people are blaming everything on their traumas you know, it down to like my back pain. Oh, I read the body keeps the score. So my back pain must be, have to be related to that time when I was three years old and th whatever happened to me, you know, people it's, it's really out of control and it's out of control in a way that's not in line with the science. You know, the, all, a lot of the science shows that there's a lot of things that, that we do with trauma, that it is really just a narrative. Uh, all there are, are potentially traumatizing situations. PTSs uh, or experiences, PTEs, potentially traumatizing experiences. But it doesn't mean you know, you know the trauma is the is the narrative and the and how you've interpreted it and how you and your memory of it and you know just memory is not a direct recollection of anything. It's reconstruction. It's a reconstruction from everything we know in cognitive science. So there's a lot of nuance here that I just think does, gets lost on hashtag trauma. Yeah, I mean, people are really reactive about this issue. Like, I shared a piece from Freddie Dubois uh, in our Progress Network newsletter recently, and I've only ever gotten as heated a reaction to something when I questioned, you know, some uh, impact of climate change. That was also during the pandemic, so I think people were feeling a little bit stir crazy. But uh, yeah, I was kind of shocked, and they were like, "You are not taking seriously." This person is punching down on people with trauma. And I was like, I don't think they're punching down on people with trauma. I think that we're just losing in pop culture the ability to get beyond this. I mean, the the whole there's a, and there's a whole, you know, backlash against the body keeps the score now and about the what the what the basis of that was. And, you know, maybe this is partly the way of just like there was a backlash against Maslow's hierarchy or or in your case, an evolution of it. But there is this human tendency, right? We, we like simple frameworks and we like easy answers and they're comforting. You know, it's, it, it, in our contemporary world, a lot of what had been filled by religion as a simple framework was filled by a, a lot of, I guess, pop theories, right? Because they, they, they simplify what's complex or they, they make us, they're comforting answers to difficult problems, but they don't tend to stay for very long, right? That they, they they tend to move move on. I'm curious about your work um, in terms of the choice not to be in academia, right? The choice not to be a professor. I see being a tenured faculty member very limiting uh, uh, for certain kinds of people, and very empowering and wonderful for other kinds of people. I am the kind of person who values my freedom uh, more than anything else in my life. I value my intellectual freedom. I value my creative expression. I love writing books, which are viewed less excitingly with the tenure committee than scientific papers. I love public outreach. Always love that. In, in graduate school, uh, while I was getting my PhD, I had the opportunity to write a blog for Psychology Today, and I loved it. And my advisor had a, a meeting with me. He thought it was an intervention. He said, we need to have an intervention. He said, you know, you're not going to get tenure someday if you keep writing Psychology Today articles. And I said, fuck tenure then. I said that. Uh, so I was like, then I'm out. And I never looked back. And here I am. I make a full-time living doing a podcast. So I don't. It's it, for me, I, I was 
my grandmother always said I'm very stubborn when it comes to I like to call it integrity. <laughs> I like to I like to call it authenticity and integrity. My grandmother calls it stubbornness. Maybe she has a point, but uh, if you tell me you know you can't do what you love to do, I will immediately react in the opposite direction and say then I'm out with all of you guys. Does that does that make sense? You know, most people defend tenure and defend the academic system as preserving the very things that you just said you value and aren't in it, like free freedom of expression and autonomy. What? You think there's freedom of intellectual expression in academia right now? And my, you know, my experience too of a lot of academia was that it wasn't necessarily the antithesis of that, but it definitely was not the preserve of that. Universities are a breeding ground right now for intellectual uh, suppression. <laughs> so, it's, uh, you know, was that controversial? <laughs> I think amongst a certain kind of people, it's not controversial. Not being in academia, my question is always how much of that feeling is based in reality as far as like this really is across the board in all universities at a high percent. And how much of it is, it exists, it's an issue, so we're going to pull it out and be like, hey, there's something going on here. It depends on what topics you're studying. Intelligence research, I don't think, is uh, very well-funded uh, or appreciated. Genetics research, you know, can be, you know, there are certain, there are certain topics that if you study them, they're, they're, you know, suppressed because they don't fit within a, a left ideology and it's 90% are on the left, you know, in academia. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not on the left, but I'm just saying that I'm just stating a fact of what the situation is. It's interesting, right, that you have to caveat that when you say it, but I guess that's that's the time we're in. I also think it's a real shame that certain, if you study certain research topics, you're put within a certain political camp. That really bothers me as well. That really bothers me as well. Regardless of my political leanings, I like to think that I am a progressive human being and want and love helping people change. That's what I mean by progressive um, in, in a positive way. Yet, you know, if if I study IQ or intelligence, people are like, you're a eugenicist. It's like, what? It's like, what? Are you kidding me? Have you read my books? Anyway, <laughs> they're all about helping people flourish, you know, but people just make automatic judgment calls. Yeah. Well, Scott, we could have had uh a multi-hour conversation with you. We didn't even get I into the, the the right brain, left brain uh, fiction, which we'll just leave as you can look look up what Scott's written about that. I was crushed that my casual use of that easy dichotomy is 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 proving to be facile at best and incorrect at worst. But life goes on, and I will have learned my lesson accordingly. You have a, a wide range of work, um, really interesting writings about creativity and consciousness. That will all have to wait to a subsequent conversation. Well, we can absolutely, you know, we can talk again someday. I, I really appreciate uh, what you both are doing, um, and I, I really, I, I sense that you all are truth seekers, which is why I dropped a lot of truth bombs today. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today, and I encourage all of you to go take the free tests on his site. Emma, what's the URL if they want to go look it up? Selfactualizationtest.com. I took like four of them today. They were really fun. <laughs> all right. Thank you, man. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, guys. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Sign- 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. That ended up being more of a controversial discussion than <laughs> I think I expected, which is good, by the way. Good, good controversial, not, not bad controversial. But I do think there's a lot that we talked about and a lot that Scott pointed to that, you know, will push people's buttons. And I think it's important. Like the one thing I, I, I look, I do tend to agree with. I think we're all primarily responsible for our own triggers. And by responsible, I don't mean it's our fault. I mean, it's our responsibility to navigate them more than it is the responsibility of others to anticipate them, which is different than having like told a friend group, you know, this is an issue for me and them continually, right? Like we're not talking about rank insensitivity and disrespect, but if you don't know someone, you don't know their background, you know where they're coming from, obviously then, then the bar should be much higher to assume ill intent or to assume triggering intent. And I think that's a really, it's a really important point. It's obviously one that, you know, X number of people listening right now are probably going to go, no, 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 that's ridiculous. Or think that that is blithely indifferent to whatever it's blithely indifferent to. I mean, my position about trigger warnings is that it supports the idea that we were talking about in the end about never getting over trauma. If you had something happen in your life and immediately after you don't want to read about that topic, you don't want to talk about that topic, you don't want to encounter that topic, I think that's totally fair. But a certain amount of years later, not that anyone's on a timeline, but trauma is meant to be integrated and processed and not sat in. So I don't think we should design a world that is implicitly telling people to stay in that period right after something really bad happens, because then you just are also implicitly communicating that people don't have the kind of resilience to get over even the worst of the worst of the worst. And I think that that's not a good idea to communicate that. All right. Well, on that note, we probably should have appended a trigger warning to the beginning of the podcast saying that this podcast (laughs) will question trigger warnings. But we didn't do that. All right. So let us turn to... If not news you can use, and at least news that you could use to hear. <laughs> I like that. Exactly. All right, Zachary, we are starting off with something that is very validating to me personally, because in What Could Go Right podcast history, we are going to be proven right about our economic predictions. So Congressional Budget Office and the Federal Reserve both put out some thoughts and uh, anticipated stats out uh, right at the end of 2023, looking forward to 2024 at the time. Now we're in 2024, and the good news is they think that we are probably going to avoid a recession, that we are going to have that mythical soft landing. Inflation has been much better behaved in the second half of the year. Headline inflation is down to 3.1%. Uh, in November from 9.1% in June of last year. Core prices rose last month 0.3% from October. That's a 3.5% annualized rate. Is inflation vanquished? It's certainly meaningfully coming down, and I see no reason on the path that we're currently on why inflation shouldn't gradually decline to levels that are consistent with Uh, the Fed's mandate and um, targets. The Congressional Budget Office projects the economy will grow 1.5% in 2024, smaller than they originally thought. That's going to bounce back to 2.5% growth in 2025. Inflation hopefully going down to 2.1%. They think that the unemployment numbers are going to rise. So 2023, they're at 3.7%. They think they're going to go to 4.4%. Fed's a little bit more optimistic. They think they're going to go to 4.1%. But altogether, that's painting a picture that is rosier than what most people were describing six months ago, except for us. So go us. So the weird thing about recessions is they don't get called until usually well after they're over and done. 
by, uh, and they're called by the National Bureau of Economic Research, called as in, when are things determined to have been a recession? That determination usually happens a year plus after there has been a recession. So people feel a recession long before one is officially declared, although if it's bad enough and there's really strongly negative GDP growth for two consecutive quarters, which is one of the definitions, then obviously that's more evident. Although even then, GDP gets revised and revised and revised and revised over the subsequent years. So it is possible that we were briefly in a recession. You know, what if there was a recession and no one noticed kind of thing? Uh, It is certainly clear that we have avoided what most people thought was unavoidable, which is that in the most aggressive Fed cycle of interest rate increases since uh, the early 1980s, that we would inevitably have some sort of recession. Unemployment would go up, wage growth would go down. And for the time being, that hasn't happened. I think it's more luck, luck in the sense of the Fed's gotten lucky by, in my view, being overly aggressive and it not having the negative consequences. But that being said, here we are, and it's been pretty wild that that's been avoided. The one thing that's also wild is how many people are convinced, utterly convinced, that unemployment is up, wages are down, and we're in a recession. Meaning, contrary to all numbers, a large percentage of people, particularly people under 30, think that things are quite different than they are, which either means the numbers are completely wrong or people's perceptions of reality are skewed by all sorts of legitimate insecurities about the future, the political situation, war in the Middle East, and just sort of like post-COVID weird uncertainty time. Personally, I'm in the camp that thinks that that's mostly from inflation, that people are looking around still and are having sticker shock uh, and are just kind of waiting for prices to go down. I think if prices go down, people will feel better generally about the economy. But certainly, I heard on the radio the other day in the state, someone was like, there are so many people looking for jobs right now. And I was like, someone did not tell this lady that. I mean, I'm sure there are people looking for jobs, but someone has not told her that the employment rate is super low, particularly for historically the neediest people in the US. So. Yeah, and, and, and part of the problem is lessening inflation doesn't actually mean the prices are going down. It just means that the rate at which they're going up is going down. And that's going to be a problem in 2024. All right, let's move on from the economy. We'll see what happens this year. I have a story from the last moments of 2023, and I am anticipating significant pushback on this, but I'm going to bring it to you anyway. So People may not know that in 2008, there was a convention on cluster munitions. So cluster munitions being the kind of explosive device that has several smaller explosive devices in it. So it sort of explodes these little bomblets everywhere, which sounds awful. And the second awful thing about them is that a lot of them, when they land, they don't explode immediately. So they can be hidden somewhere and explode months, years later and harm civilians even you know, a long time after an active war. Uh, and in 2008, 112 countries agreed to destroy their cluster munition stockpiles, clear the cluster munition remnants. So kind of like the, the mine clearing that has taken up until now, for instance, in Cambodia, it's a similar process, and assist victims uh, of cluster munitions. The last of the 112 countries that agreed to this did clear their stockpiles at the very end of 2023. That was Peru. And the other countries that agreed to this convention that achieved this in 2023 were Bulgaria, Slovakia, and South Africa. So that's everyone that signed on to the convention in 2008. They have achieved their goals. The big massive caveat to that is that the countries that you would really care about most about producing and using and having cluster munitions are not party to this agreement. So the kind of big baddies of the world, including the U.S., uh, Russia, India, Israel, North and South Korea, Singapore, Turkey, Poland, all these places that have kind of, I don't know how to say this, maybe particular reason to have weapons on hand. They have not agreed to this. They still have lots of cluster munitions. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says Ukraine's forces have made notable progress in their offensive against heavily entrenched Russian troops in the south. CBS's Deborah Pata traveled to the eastern front lines for a rare look at the use of cluster munitions supplied by the United States. 
The controversial U.S.-supplied cluster munitions, which sometimes fail to explode, endangering civilians long after a war is over. But artillery commander Musikant says they are crucial because they can cover a wide area using only one shell. I think this one can risk sounding very Pollyannish, where it's like 112 countries that weren't at war anyway and probably will not go to war have destroyed their weapons. But these other ones that are have not. So, But in general, I do think that these sort of stops and starts be toward a world where that is less armed to the teeth, or certainly less armed to the teeth with certain types of weapons, which has been part of the international dialogue since the end of World War One. I. I don't think we should look at this cynically just because it remains an uphill struggle to get the large armed countries that really matter, like the United States, China, Russia, to back off of those weapons because you know, we live in real time, so everything is messy and noisy, and there's a lot of one-step backs that you're aware of, uh, even if you can sometimes be aware of the two steps forward. That is, if you even believe in the two steps forward, one step back equation. And so, yeah, I would say to those who say, well, come on, who cares if 100 countries that aren't even making the weapons destroy the weapons they bought from the countries that are still making them and could potentially use them. Nonetheless, a global move that says, hey, this is not if there is just war, you, you don't need cluster munitions to fight one. And so we're just not going to accept this, just like we haven't accepted the use of biological and chemical agents, let alone nuclear. So I didn't realize when we you know started the good news portion of the podcast that would involve talking about so much morbid, macabre, depressing stuff. Yeah. But well, does. we've always said that that it is good news within context, and also it's more of a recognition of acknowledging movement even in a really ugly set of human realities is still necessary you know that expecting purity and brightness and daisies as the definition of the human condition is ridiculous but recognizing change and motion even within challenge and ugliness is is part of the task and requires some effort yeah well said that's it for today all right Thank you all for listening. We will be back next week. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Plugglomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, the Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.